0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films, every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. At once, an examination of loneliness and the masks we wear to face the world, Andrew Wonders Farrell tells the story of Yasmin, a young woman living in the tunnels underneath Manhattan's west side. Surviving on her own terms while trying to build a life alone, she is reeling from the loss of her mother, who was deported when she was 16 years old. Along her journey, Yasmin meets a cast of characters and real New York personalities, each living their own form of exile a lonely piano player who's never played his music out loud a mother who regrets the birth of her six-year-old and a lonely grandmother nostalgic for her salsa music the film is called feral and we're joined today by the writer director cinematographer producer and that would be andrew wonder andrew welcome to film school radio
1: oh thank you so much it's such an honor to be here uh, and be in this great category of filmmaker you've spoken to before. Wow. Thanks for taking the time to watch it and speak with me today.
0: You're very welcome. Best place to start is to ask you where the story of Farrell came from.
1: I have spent, you know, for mostly I consider better, but sometimes with the danger worse. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to spend time with the people who live beneath New York City and Las Vegas. Uh, that journey began... A little bit over 10 years ago with an amazing explorer historian steve duncan and we made a film called under city it was a it went very viral which is very surprising because i just made it because i found something i always wanted to do which was see a world i'd never seen before and i spent the whole summer i was working for the director paul schrader as at the time as his assistant and i was shooting parkour every weekend climbing rooftops breaking into subways every night. and then working for Paul all day during the day for a summer. And, and along the way, we, we met the people who live down there and they, they really, you know, kind of touched me because we look at homeless people as invisible. We, we don't see them. Uh, we don't make eye contact with them mostly, whether it's because of guilt of not having anything to give or fear or whatever the reason. And, you know, when you're, Spending nights in the tunnels with people, you you get to get to know them and you get to know them as normal people. You get to know where they came from. And you also get to know the eccentricities that that took them there. And that experience always stayed with me. The New York people stayed with me as those tunnels got thinner and thinner throughout the years after the film. Uh, Homeless people I'd see on the street. But for this character, for Yasmin's character in particular, I've always had great empathy for this part of the world that I've always felt like in film uh, we've done such a disservice to the homeless. We've done such a disservice to the lonely people of the world because we spend so much time pointing out their loneliness as opposed to looking at how they get through it. And, and when I was in college, I went to NYU in New York and there was this guy on the street who looked just like my course teacher in middle school. Uh, And I'd always see him and every day I'd see him and, He was fine. He was talkative. He'd ask for money, whatever, you know, not really a big thing. Another person in New York. And I didn't go back there for years. And a couple of years ago, I was, you know, back in the area and I saw him again. And suddenly his hair had grown back. His fingernails were long. He was mumbling. He wasn't coherent. And, you know, it's just this phrase came into my head from that experience. I wrote in a notebook and it always stayed with me. And it was just that, you know, when we, when we treat people, like they're animals you know then we're asking nature to take care of them and and from all that it's just this image of a of of a woman alone you know with nothing but her world in her arms walking through a slow through a snowstorm to me it was just an image it appeared in a dream and it just stayed with me for years and I never knew what to do with it and You know, it was the end of 2017 and I had just had the shit kicked out of me. I had lost a lot of hope in what I was doing, a lot of enjoyment. And I went to a meeting and it just like broke my heart. I didn't even know who I was in the mirror. And I, I basically went back home and, and, with my friend jason we wrote it we we you know the thing you saw came out in 10 days and we at the end of the year and it was the whole journey was such an emotional journey every step of the way we were just it was like a space launch and we would just say you know what is the next thing next thing that has to happen to do it the way that we want to do it and it all kept happening and somehow magically these years later i'm here talking to you and i still can't believe it
0: once you wrote the script, once you felt like you had enough material, what was your next step? Did you look for financing? Did you just look for a cast, something to get started with? Well, what's the next step for a, a filmmaker after, after that?
1: I think it depends on the filmmaker. Uh, a lot of filmmakers handle it different ways. Um, and for me as a filmmaker it's funny, I have some clients I work with that joke, and they call me a method director. And <laughs> I think in some ways, it's kind of appropriate, though I get embarrassed when I say it. And uh, because it's, it's, you know, I, I don't do these things for capitalism, I do other things, I do these things because I have an intention. And there's a feeling that is hurting me or needs to come out. And I hope that by giving it to the world that I can heal, you know, heal myself and heal someone else at the same time, like movies has done for me. And so I start these journeys They're, They're not so much for financing or producing They're, They're hunting for the story. My process is based on discovery. I started working with MTV when I was 17 and I would just get drop shipped to high schools with nothing but a camera and have to make broadcast shows. And so you kind of learn about emotion in a different way. So when I take on these processes, especially in development, I'm looking more for like finding collaborative emotion and resonance. So I started with then just by building the world. So the first step I did, you know, uh, Colleen Dodge, my production designer and life partner and all amazing things, you know, we were going to meetup groups for freegans and learning to pick through trash. I was spending J's in my gym clothes, riding the subway with no money and no phone. We were talking to people for actors. We we're searching on Instagrams. I was just looking for a heartbeat and it's funny, in January, I'd almost given up like a month later, and a friend of mine, uh, an agent friend of mine, just called me up like, are you going to Sundance? What's going on? I was like, no, I'm prepping a movie. And she was like, are you looking for talent? Uh, Elizabeth Wiederstein, I'll always be grateful to you for this. And she sent me some names, and I wasn't sure. And she said, check out Annapurna. And then Anna Annapurna walked into this coffee shop, and in 10 seconds, I knew I was making a movie. And it was only six weeks later we started making it.
0: That's a great story, and she, and I uh, let me just uh, concur in your assessment of her, uh, having put so much faith in her in the making of this film. Uh, she is in almost every frame of this film, and she she's able to convey so many different things, and one of the things that I felt she did so effectively is the thing that you were just talking about in terms of people who are homeless, we relegate them to the margins of society we criminalize them we do a lot of things to them in order to either shame them or or essentially force them into behaviors that we can then continue to ridicule and punish but the one thing that i have found in my limited amount of time in uh, working with people in homeless shelters they have a developed intelligence they have a survival instinct they are, as in some sometimes mental health issues are, you know, will will keep them from getting out of that cycle. but a lot of times they have uh, a presence to their to them that I think you really capture in this film, a real a real uh, you can call it a survival instinct. you can there's a lot of different ways to frame it, but I think what you did in this film with Farrell is capture some of the things that you were talking about uh, in, in in your intentions to make this film.
1: Well, I, I could not ask for greater praise, and I appreciate that. The the homeless person, we've looked at it too long as, as some narrative trope. Uh, they're the person down on their luck or they're the alcoholic or they made a mistake. But the truth is they started just like us. Yeah. They were in elementary school with you. You know, it's, I, I swear in my experience, the hardest thing for me, and I wonder how much this is for the rest of the world. It's just it's so hard to look at a someone who who lost that tie to society and and humanize them. Because when you humanize them, they become they're your brother, they're your father, they're your sister. You know what i mean and then they're on the streets alone and they were in your elementary school classroom you know like what happens you know they're people you talk to you know like we we talk to homeless you know because we have to help homeless people and their services for them we talk about them like them but they're us uh you're with them if you've ever spent you know like i don't know if you've ever spent a full day in your shame or loneliness but you start riding around with no one wanting to talk to you or smelling you for a day and you spend a day on the street it's it's in some ways it's not even mental illness it's just you find a way to protect yourself you find a way to go by and it's like imagine how boring it is you know why do you think you don't see movies about homeless like what do you do all day and right. can you imagine sitting I mean we're all doing it right now in quarantine and how many people do you know just like I know have been going nuts from it
0: yeah.
1: I just can't even imagine but there's but there's beauty there's beauty in the freedom you go in those tunnels those tunnels are amazing. They're, they're cool in the summer. They're warm in the winter. I, I've been going in them for over a decade. There's no rats. I've never seen a rat. I saw a raccoon once. I've never seen a rat in a tunnel down there. They're clean. They're warm. They're safe if you're in a shelter. And it's like all these things are contradictions. How can you be safe? How can you be happy? How are you alone? And, you know, and that's why the intention was to focus on just is there joy in that life and where does it come from? And, and, you know, when do you let yourself go to the joy and when does letting yourself go make you a victim? When does it make you strong and all those things? And I just, you know, cause she's, she was a person to me. She was a person in my head and then Anna perna made her a different person and the person kept growing. But, you know, I hope that that dignity and respect will make it easier. You know, even if you don't have the dollar to give just to make eye contact with someone.
0: And so what you're saying and what I see in Yasmeen and her character is this, this she's engaging with people in the film. She's in, She wants to engage, but she also has one eye on the door too, which is part of this, you know, incredibly difficult and stressful life. From my own experience, what I saw in the film, it really resonated with me.
1: So. It's, 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 and it's that, inte- you know, think about it in your house, your friend, your partner, your parents. Think about what happens when... You have a question and you have a need and you feel ignored. Think about that, what that does to your body with someone you love and you look at every day, you know, mm-hmm. just think about that feeling and imagine if that became your normal with every person you ever interacted with throughout the day, yeah. you know, it's like, and I, and it's, you know, it's so hard doing these projects. It's so hard doing them because you see an issue and you want to do something about it. Then you're making a film and it becomes its own thing. I started. I had another documentary I made that became. I, I help a lot of kids who can't pay for sports in Ohio in high school. I, I, I used to teach high school and stuff like that. And so with this film, you know, we want to make sure we helped. And there's a really beautiful organization in New York called Backpacks for the Streets. Uh, Jeffrey Newman is the guy who runs it, and I'm I'm so happy that we'll be do- donating. A, a nice part of our profits to them. I mean, because so many of these, I, I've been around so many organizations, I've talked with so many psychologists. It's such a problem. You can't put someone in a mental institution anymore. You can't just randomly put someone in jail. So so how do you help someone that needs help? It takes all this time. It takes all this communication. It takes all this rounds of work. And what I love about what Jeffrey and his team are doing is that they're directly giving back they pre-make these backpacks with supplies you're now with covid it's a whole new level but you know you see photos of them, and and they're on the streets like making that eye contact they're handing these things and and it's hard you know we all debate we've all heard the things do you give money to the homeless what are they going to spend it on do you give it to the organization blah 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 but the truth is, I don't know if I if I have five dollars in my pocket and I see someone hurting, who cares what that person uses the five dollars for? Even if they just can get five minutes of peace, it's yeah. probably more helpful in their day than that five dollars would be for mine.
0: That's yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, uh, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Andrew Wonder, and the film is called Feral. and uh, Andrew is the director as well as the writer, cinematographer. Did you edit some of this as well, I'm guessing?
1: <laughs> no, thank God, no. Uh, Jason Sager, oh, so grateful to him and all the hours. It, it, You know, it's funny, I did a lot of things more. This is a small film. You know, we made it. Our crew was four people. There was more cast than crew for the most part. We had a lot of great hands that would come support that four, in and out. We had some, some great people, but, you know, this is my first feature. And this is a story that means something to me. And the most important goal to all of us was that we made a film that no one else could make. Like, you know, you're not going to bring Tom Cruise into a subway tunnel. You can't. You can't even get permission. So we had the story. We had these things. So what could we do that no one else could do? And it very quickly became apparent that we could be a lot more dangerous. Not in the safety of our crew, but in our process. The way that we explored. The way we shot. I'll never forget it was the first Oh, the first day of shooting was the with Kevin Hoffman, who's so great as the, the boy who sings the song that she meets at the beginning. Right. right. You know, she's at the keyboard. There's, there's just, it's a scene. It's funny. Kevin's an actor I've known for a while, and he was another one of those first people we wrote a part for him because he's got such a beautiful voice and such a great part. Like To me, if, you, if your listeners aren't familiar with Kevin Hoffman, he was on the deuce a little bit. He's been around, but truly has like that Ratso Rizzo personality when you bring it out. He could do those things. And and it was the first day of shooting. I'm like, all right, I'll do the scene with my best weapons. I got Annapurna. I got Kevin. It's going to be great. We took this empty apartment. We took it into that. You know, there was no furniture, no anything. We had a few hours. Uh, I was the DP on the movie. Uh, not not so much, kind of more out of necessity, because I wanted to shoot in tunnels. and I wanted to shoot these things, and I just didn't feel safe asking anyone else. You know, I... I shoot while I direct. I don't really look at the LCD screen and I pull my own focus by muscle memory. It's like a weird skill set I've developed <laughs> over the years from some of this dangerous shooting. So it's, it's hard to explain. So I usually do my own handheld anyway. And, uh, and we're there and I remember it's the first day of shooting and I had all these plans. I had all these shot lists. I was like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be a filmmaker finally. You know, that legitimacy stuff we, that we're fed with too much and i get up there and we start shooting and it is not working and i'll never forget this it wasn't that anyone was bad you know kevin was doing great Annapurna was doing great everyone was doing fine but you know i don't know when you're in it it's like sometimes it sings and sometimes it doesn't yeah. and i think a lot of times people have faith in their plans and so that they forget to look at the storm actually around them And I was looking at the storm pretty clearly and I was not in a good place and I'll I'll never forget it was like halfway through the day and I just I sat there in the dark eating my Chinese food in a quarter and (laughs) and I remember going man how am I going to make it out of this one alive and I I had this moment and I just sat there and said you know what I'm only going to embrace what's good. And I'm going to forget everything else. I'm just going to delete it. I'm not going to let it stop me. I'm not going to let it get in front of me, no matter what the element. And I woke up from that lunch and it changed the complete way I made the film. And it's suddenly like the script. uh, There are characters that don't exist. There's plot lines that that don't exist in the final film. Because in a day or two, Annapurna was so good, so real. All that You know all that crap you add to a script to make it a movie, yeah. like the structure, all those things? You know, I didn't need any of it. She had a little brother at one point who was in the film that we shot with for a day, and was like, this isn't as real anymore. It's not as good. Mm-hmm. And so I started just letting my compass and my camera be my beacon, and instead of shooting with my eyes, I started shooting with my ears and my heart. And, we, and it became just the most beautiful experience because of it. Like the way we would make the scene... There wasn't like, we do this, then we do this. We'd live in it. I would hold the camera for four to six hours, and we would just start, and we would live it, and we'd build it from scratch. We would take our experiences. We'd take the experiences from around us. I'd look at the camera, and I'd go, okay, how emotionally close do I need to feel? How far should I feel? Is this from across the room? Is this right in her face? Like, are we with her, or does she need to be alone? And I just started using that as the guide, and the world started playing music. You know, even the music in the film, Moondog, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but an amazing, like an amazing, like huge influence of Philip Glass, like New York kind of legend. He was a giant blind Viking who played music and read poems, you know, on like sixth Avenue in New York city. And he would take these instruments. It would sound like the city, you know, you could hear there's this great track. It was impossible to find, but, you know, even the version in the movie is like one I ripped off YouTube. And, uh, you know and there's this amazing song he did called on broadway and the first like 30 seconds of the song are just traffic on broadway right. and his instruments go in and you know he, you know he became the heart of the film by accident because of this process he was one mention in the first scene with guy played by kevin and Perda. you know in yeah. in the apartment when he sings the song the album was mentioned as just like a throwaway idea from jason mendez i mean so much of the music so much of the flavor in the script jason just added with things like that but throughout the process moondog just became more and more a part of it we shot that scene that then out of nowhere i was at aurora's house the woman who plays the grandmother yes you know, she meets halfway yes oh it's one of my what a surprise that scene ended up being it just became such a little beautiful you know a little a little like five six page scene in the script that just becomes 13 minutes of a movie you know just because it suddenly had a heartbeat, you know, it just she was there and we we're like, let's start cooking this other thing. And and it was funny. Aurora, who's in that scene, she was like, I read Moondog in your script. I know Moondog. I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And she was like, she's like, I grew up with Moondog's daughter. She grew up in like East Harlem. Best friends with like Moon, Moondog's daughter and like stayed at his house once, like knew him. So that was cycle two. And I'm like, what's going on with this guy? <laughs> And then cycle three, uh, we go So the record store scene. There's a great right. scene. She talks to Benny, a record store owner in Red Hook, Brooklyn. He real record store that's Benny's store. He's been in other films. He's such a great character. And that was funny. That was a scene that I kept cutting from the script. Uh, it was really funny. It was always in there, and I kept cutting it. Because I kept being like, we don't really need this. He doesn't really need to go there. I have a lot to shoot. But everyone, you know, Colleen kept saying, Anna Pernick kept saying, everyone kept saying, this is such a great scene. It is. And so <laughs> so on the, you know, and that was one of the last ones we shot. So in our final week when we were doing some of the tunnel stuff and just hopping around, we went to that record store. And out of nowhere, Benny started talking. And he started telling us about how his uncle knew Moon Dog. You know, it was like <laughs> so miraculous. And it stayed with me. And then we're editing. And, you know, you can imagine with the way I'm describing shooting this what the edit process was like, you know what I mean? Like I come back, I'll come back with just hundreds of hours of footage. Like when I used to be at MTV, I would shoot 200 hours an episode. You know, it would just I love, you know, I love hunting. And, you know, it's those those little things you find. It's like I, I don't use slates. I think they're. It's like shooting film. It's like, why would you want to be an anachronism right now when the whole world has opened itself up with possibility? Like, why are we holding on to these 100-year-old traditions that solve problems that don't exist anymore? Right. And I don't get it, so I roll. And when I roll, I can hunt because it's when I'm holding for two hours and I don't say cut and a camera in my hand I can pick up that I can talk and it keeps growing. So, <laughs> you know, the edit process wasn't easy. Uh, Jason somehow did an amazing first edit in three weeks. That parts were singing, parts weren't. We we're like, what are we gonna do? And every day I'd wake up, I'd listen to my Moon Dog to try to get out of bed and face the edit again. You know, I'd go yeah. up there, we'd get morally defeated, go back home. And then one day, I was just listening to the Moon Dog, and we put it under that first scene of her in that yellow, you know, that yellow poncho walking through the streets, and we put that song on, and we found the movie in a heartbeat. Yeah. It was such an amazing experience, and the second that music—it it, like—suddenly found the playfulness and the joy in the whole thing. So you never know. I could have, you could have never told me three years ago that some guy named Moondog Dog was going to be the music by credit <laughs> on an idea I had about a homeless woman I met ten years ago in a tunnel. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's wild. yeah. But that's the beauty of the process.
0: And as you're describing your the making of this film, the film feels like that it feels so organic and i I'm, I'm trying off the top of my head uh try to remember i'm going to say there's about four or five sort of sets in the film if you will right yeah. the beginning where she's bummed the cigarette and then we go to there, there's uh, uh, to the woman yeah, the, 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 mom, the mom the mom yeah totally. the, mo- the mom in the park uh, it, there's And so and they all have this—they uh, feel there's structure to them, but within that structure, it feels just exactly what you described. And uh, it's hard to pick out one that I am most drawn to, but I do like uh, Aurora's scene. I, I really love that because she is so open, and Yasmin is also leery— but you can see her sort of melt away into the warmth that, that Aurora is giving her. And it it's just for all that she's been through and and all of the things that she knows she has still has to deal with, it is that 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 island that she finds in, in, in her life. And it's it's a, it's really a wonderful scene. You're absolutely right. There's so many. I mean I really like the scene with the mom. Who is there? There's two moms in the film. There's one. Yeah, yeah, and
1: but the about should I have had this child? Yeah, yeah. She, she unspoken mother conversation. Right, right, yeah.
0: yeah, And I, 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 I so appreciate that because I feel like that is uh, that's a dangerous way to approach a film and on a, some level. But it also, as you are talking about, and I'm hearing in your what you're saying. It opens you up to so much, Uh, and I'll just go back to Ramin Barani, uh, who I, uh, who have been fortunate enough to have conversations with, and uh, that's how his films feel. It feels like he was open to those moments when he was making those films, and God, it's just such a wonderful thing to see pay off, like like I see in Farrell, and oh, yeah, it's it's why I love independent filmmaking. It's why I love film, but I certainly am drawn to the kind of well, filmmaking.
1: That's so, uh, th- thank you so much for saying those kind words. And, and I, I think about those questions often, and it's just, you know, we have computers now. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm wearing a, a phone on my wrist, and I got another one in my pocket. You know what I mean? The world's wild, even in filmmaking. Like, like what image can you dream of that you can't create with a computer now? Is there anything, is there anything that you can conceive of that with a little bit of like a viz team you couldn't create? And I look at that and I say, well, then all this shit we're chasing from the 70s, all this ways of making movies, all this old methodology, all this way of, of trying to make the things that worked in the past. It just doesn't make sense because what is the value of images now? Like, you know, what is the value of an image that you could create in a computer of anyone you can And so with that in mind, I've just taken the last couple of years and I've just completely retooled the way I work and the way I approach things because, you know, it's the ideas that don't scale that I think are going to be the future. I really believe that it's the moments that you can only capture once it's the magic trick you see the first time and i think that's what the world's asking for now and i think that's especially what our movie audiences are asking for i don't know if i achieved it perfectly with feral but until it kills me i'm gonna keep trying
0: well, this goes to one of the strengths of the film, your cinematography, the images you do capture. And I, I'm reminded of, I don't know who said it, I'm, I'm maybe you do, but they were talking about mastering, you know, a, a musician mastering the piano or the guitar. And the instructions were basically along this line. That is, practice, learn it, and then once you've learned it, forget everything you learned. And that's how this... That's what I think you're describing in making a film. As you describe, you can you can create any image you want, but when it when it comes down to it, it's what is out of your your soul. It's telling a story that resonates with something more than uh, simply an um, a an image uh, a, a beautiful image, but nonetheless something. What does that mean? And again, I'll come back to how this film resonates with me in, those, in that regard. It's the beauty amongst this very, very desperate situation that we find Yasmeen in. There's this incredible beauty in what you were able to make from that. Um, so once again, I'm at a loss to ask you a question except to acknowledge that that's just how the film made me feel gosh, Andrew, uh, I hope to God you are working on other stuff. I hope that this film has brought you the kind of attention that will allow you to do what you want to do. Continue to do that. Uh, I'm, i yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I,
1: it, it brought me peace. You know, I, success is a hard thing to chase. I've seen it. I've had it. I've lost it. I've been through it a couple of times. It's, uh, you know, all those things are fleeting and, and I hope deep down, especially in this new world that we're starting to enter, uh, it's the things that nourish us that I hope can help the world the most. And, you know, I I had to look at my own loneliness. I had to look at my own fears and I had to look a lot of my own shames. And, and I'm grateful to come out of it years later, feeling better about myself and better about the world around me. I hope because we all you know, bled a lot to have it exist on whatever hard drive you'll get to stream it from. Yeah. But, you know, it's the intention was to, to help heal. And, you know, that's what films did when, you know, I, I spent a long time working for Paul Schrader and really interesting guy. I learned so much from him of, of the, you know, three guys who really changed my life. And, and Paul, through his gruff kindness, you know, showed me a lot about the world. It's really interesting when you're around that class of filmmaker. And I'm curious if you've seen this yourself through your interviews. But, you know, yeah. we all kind of have an itch we're scratching, a reason we got here. Like, you see, like, the Spielbergs and the Scorseses, they're, they're capturing some feeling from when they were a kid, you know, and cinema mm-hmm. was their babysitter, or however it was for them. And Paul is so intellectual, and it's amazing to see how he turns his intellect into metaphors, into stories. But I just, I don't know, I came from another place. I, you know, it was, uh, I had a lonely life growing up. And, you know, when I was a teen, it hurt a lot of my chest. And the feelings were really overwhelming. And, you know, as I started to grow up and come out of those feelings, I didn't come to filmmaking till much later, you know, to my college years. And when I started coming out of those feelings of teen angst, it was cinema that allowed my chest to feel that way again, that allowed me to explore those feelings that, that, you know, because I didn't have the people around me to guide me to, you know, where to point towards, you know, it helped give me examples and responsibility. And, and, you know, I know there's all this capitalism and I know there's Oscars and I know there's streaming and there's a lot of business that makes this possible, but you know, those, those great filmmakers, we all love, I swear that they were trying to answer some, some question that the universe was giving not trying to like make a lookbook or copy some other film and and I just I just hope that these projects can heal us a little bit or or you know start allowing us to aspire again as opposed to just trying to make something that gives us a pat on the back
0: by the way your work has brushed up against uh, against me from a previous interview I did interview Paul Schrader for Dog Eat Dog, when that came out. No way. Yeah.
1: And uh, yeah, that was such an experience, that movie. No while, really. Yeah.
0: Yeah, oh. I could, I, to be honest with you, I couldn't believe I, I was getting him on the show because, I mean, Paul Schrader, for God's sake, right? He was, just as you alluded to, he was gruff, but he was honest and he was friendly in the sense of he was more than happy to, to you know, to talk about his work and he talked pretty openly about how he felt wronged by a lot of the Hollywood establishment. this is my recollection of, of the time, yeah. and how Dog Eat Dog was kind of his uh, cinematic FU back to Hollywood for not, I think, not valuing him the way that he felt uh, he should be, and uh, so it's interesting, you know, to hear that he had that impact on your life, and I yeah I I may be wrong in my assessment, but that's certainly the the impression I got from from him in our interview. Uh, he it, it's it's a it's a really singular film. Like what's the word I'm looking for? That's not the right word. Gonzo is what Gonzo. Yeah, I go a lot. Yeah. It's, it, yeah,
1: It was such an experience. Yeah. I, you know it's. Uh, What's the Woody Allen quote? What is it? That directing's like sex. You never get to see someone else do it. You know what I mean? And, and uh, you know, and, and it's true. And it's weird as a director. I, I, I was a workhorse. I was, a, I was like, I worked for MTV when I was 17. I was a camera assistant by the time I was 18. I was in the union by 19. I was shooting movies by 20. Like, I loved it. You couldn't get me off set the second I got there. And I was lucky I got to watch so much before i did and you know that experience was so interesting to see a director like paul on set it taught me so much because from the criticism side and the review side we watch these final films and we think there's some like great magic you know we think they get like 3d printed that way Uh and you know but they don't (laughs) and uh they don't, and it's funny, and they and you never know where it's gonna go. And it, it was so funny just watching someone else do it and learning around them. And Paul was just like, I mean, God knows the ways that I found to piss him off during that process, <laughs> but you know, because I'm like, I've grown up a lot the last few years, but that was kind of before that. And uh, it's hard, you're you know, you, you have all this energy, you want to try all these things, and you're with like one of your heroes. Uh-huh. It was definitely a interesting position but ah, oh, just to be on set and watch him and to watch someone who's just a complete opposite we would you know it was fascinating like paul will just like he'll literally just cover a scene which is so alien to the way i got taught to film like it's amazing to to see the actual methodology of classical filmmaking yeah. enacted in a modern way i was a cinematographer that a rapper threatened to kill me and my family in the beginning of youtube videos so i quit it and somehow became an assistant to paul in the middle of that and it was cool because i always felt like you know he wanted to know what the kids were doing and i was and i wanted to know what the adults were doing and we were kind of on the opposite sides of the bell curve and it's you know but he's so modern in his attitude but But, you know, it's your muscle memory. It's who you are, you know, who you form in yourself and how you form your process. Your methodology stays with you no matter how the world changes. Like I I started shooting people with no lines and no anything with a handheld camera. Like you can't you can't get me to have the patience to do much else. Paul's the opposite. and He can't stand to overcover a scene or have more than he wants to edit. To be able to be in a rehearsal and a table read with Nick Cage and Willem Dafoe. Yeah. To be able to, to be able to like talk to them and like you know he uh, you know to be able to block a scene here and there and throw an idea. Though it was always funny. Every time I blocked a scene with Paul, I would always get yelled at and kicked out of the room because <laughs> <laughs> because. Because I was always on the opposite side of the talent from him every time. It was the, you know, when you walk around with like your two fingers out, going like, "This is the shot." Yeah, yeah. And you'd be like, "Great action!" And then we'd both be standing there, and he'd be like, "Get the fuck out of my way." <laughs> I'm grateful. I got to sh- do my first big car chase. I got to crack my first rib shooting it. It's been the weird part of my career. Right? It's, uh, I feel very grateful. I just was dropped into digital so early. You know, it was. T- 2003 when I was at MTV with a mini TV camera and then I went right after that to film school where everyone like gave you the stink eye if you touch tape you know and everyone was film and film will be alive forever <laughs> but it just didn't make sense and it's just like how could you you know how how could you say to me that something that a, a speck of dust or a hair could ruin the days of work is the future but that's a whole nother thing. And I remember, and I was so grateful. I'm so, you know, Francis Lyons was my first mentor, the guy at MTV who kind of taught me to tell stories and how to shoot. And when I got to film school, you know, no one had that attitude. And so I just started teaching people video cameras and, and, uh, what a gift it was. I, the, the other person who really touched my life is this guy, Harris Savides. Oh, Do you I know don't... him, the cinematographer? Yeah, Harris and I, I spent maybe a like a dozen days of my life with him before he moved on and i you know he's he's one of those people i uh like i could cry thinking about every day still um and he you know i met him actually it was funny it was the third day i was working for paul and there was a sony camera at the time the z1u that no one liked but terry richardson for some reason and me and cole did teach Harris the camera And it became a day of me and Harris on a soundstage just trying to one up each other with little toys and tricks and methods. Cause you know, I was like 21. I didn't know what I, you know, I didn't know not to speak up or anything else. And we just battled it out for a day. and, And he was the first person to really treat me well for being weird if that makes sense. yeah, You know, yeah. he kind of like, he got it. He, you know, everyone else was always like, well, you're going to have to get good at the... even my mom was like, when I told her I want to be a jack of all trades, she told me I'd fail, you know, like, you know, it's just, everyone wants to turn you into something else or put you in a lane or file you. And, and he was truly the first person that said to me, you're good the way you are. And, you know, that'll stay with me the rest of my life.
0: What a great story. Andrew, wow. I, I, incredible, incredible thank conversation. Thank you so much for all the time. Oh, you're very welcome. Anuparna was amazing. I thank you. This has been a great day today.
1: <laughs> oh, oh and So thank you for pulling your day, of Farrell. And we are so grateful to you for finding our film. Oh. I hope this is the first of many, many conversations.